The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. So we've been for a few weeks now exploring these different expressions of the fruit of the Spirit captured in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And I intended to talk about peace today, uh, but in light of the annual meeting and just trying to be more thematic and big picture, about what we want for the year, I decided rather to put a pause on looking at the individual expressions of the fruit of the Spirit. So for the next time I preach, um, I will tackle the issue of peace. But I want to step back a a little and look more broadly at basically asking this question of why is this teaching on the fruit of the Spirit so important to the overall story of the Bible? Let me begin by asking you this question. Why does it matter if we bear the fruit of the Spirit in our life? Why does it matter? In fact, for some of you, you may actually reply, it doesn't really matter. Um, Trying to demonstrate this fruit of the Spirit in our life, it just sometimes, if we're really honest, just feels like one more burden that's being dumped on us. And we don't want to worry about it. And with all of the busyness of our lives, this call for this kind of dramatic character change Uh, just maybe isn't a priority for you. You don't see it as that essential. Not only that, but I think if we're really honest, there's a discouragement factor involved as well. I think many of us think the truth is, how much progress do any of us really make anyway when it comes to growing in these areas of love, joy, peace, patience? And in fact, you can even logic, you know, what's the point in all of this effort? for what seems like just lot, not a lot of results. Especially when in the life to come, we're all going to be made perfect anyway, right? Like we're just struggling here, but, you know, when we get to heaven, we'll all be perfect. And so what's the point? Listen, I don't have time to unpack all that is wrong with those arguments and what's wrong with all the theology behind those arguments. But I just want to focus on one particular aspect of all this. And I think it is that there is a tendency for Christians to think like this because of our incomplete understanding of what salvation really is. In other words, there is a danger of focusing only on what we are saved from and not what we are saved for. That's how I want to frame it. The way we have very traditionally heard the gospel presented is that we are saved from sin and death. We are saved from our alienation with God. And these are important truths, but if we stop there, it only tells part of the salvation story. You know, one of the common ways that we have tell people to share their faith with others or to evangelize is to ask them, do you know where you're going to go when you die? And the problem with even approaching the gospel like that is that it frames the story completely around us. We have a sin problem that has resulted in a death problem. And we have an eternal destiny problem as a result of that. And according to this way of looking at salvation, the gospel is all about our problem and how God wants to solve it. 
And this perspective on the gospel views salvation like God throwing us a life preserver for a person who is drowning. And Jesus is like that lifeboat. But if rescuing us from drowning is all that mattered, then once we're in the lifeboat, which, you know, we equate with believing in Jesus so that we know we will go to heaven when we die, what else is there to really worry about other than getting as many other people onto that lifeboat as we can before the ship goes down? And I would say, sadly, for many Christians, this is where the story ends. And so why fuss over issues like displaying kindness and gentleness in your life? In fact, where does this teaching on the fruit of the Spirit fit into the story of salvation? This is why it's so important that we don't frame the gospel story around us, but around God and his plan for his creation. It is then we will understand what we are saved for and not just what we are saved from. Because the Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created us to be his image bearers. Genesis 1, 27 says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. In other words, one of the most important purposes as humans is to reflect aspects of God's nature through our own lives. This is what it means to be made in his image. But what the Bible tells us is that because of our sin, we have all fallen short of this calling to be his image bearers. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 23 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. What Paul is saying is that in our sinful state, we essentially abandon our call to be image bearers who reflect his glory. And instead, we chose our own path to follow. And we decided to listen to our own wisdom and worship our own gods rather than the true God. And as Paul lists in the verses that will follow in Romans 1, instead of reflecting God's nature, we end up distorting it, in fact, by the way we live selfishly and hurt others and even exploit his creation instead of stewarding it. We distort God's image, in other words, when we lie in order to get out of a difficult situation, when we explode in anger when somebody wrongs us. We distort God's image in us when we hoard all of our wealth for ourselves while others around us go hungry, or when we devalue someone because of the color of their skin. And look at what the psalmist says about the impact that this worship of other gods has in our life. In Psalm 115, verse 4 to 8, But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. What the psalmist is essentially saying is that we become what we worship. That's image language. That's image of God language. 
In other words, we were made to worship God, and as we worship Him, we in turn will end up reflecting His glory into the world as His image bearers. But when we worship other gods, we end up instead, in a twisted way, becoming like them. Instead, we bear their image in our lives. And so as he says, these dead idols that have no senses like seeing or hearing or touch, when we worship them, we will become like them. We will reflect that image through the deadening of our own senses. And this is exactly what happened to the Israelites. Their senses were so deadened that they could not recognize that the glory of God stood right in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 13 Verse 15, for this people's hearts has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their e eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and, and turn, and I would heal them. That's what Jesus is saying. They have just become like the idols that they worship. Rather than reflecting the image of God, they reflect the image of their idols by their deadened senses. So that they cannot recognize that the glory of God stands right before them. But through Jesus, the Bible tells us that our calling as his image bearers is restored. Enabling us to once again reflect God's glory through our own lives. This is what we are saved for. This is the restoring work of salvation. And it is accomplished through the work of the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 to 9 says this, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Now, this is kind of confusing what Paul is saying. But Paul is pointing out that in the book of Exodus, when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, being in the presence of God in his glory, his face actually shone physically like a light bulb. It was bright to the point where it literally radiated light, like a glow-in-the-dark toy placed under a lamp. And he said, if that was the case with this older covenant, which was weaker than the one we have now, then how much more so will the people of God under Jesus Christ reflect his glory like Moses did, but even in a much greater way? And Paul says, and this I am confident God will do in you if, in fact, the Holy Spirit is in you. And then look what he says in verses 13 to 16. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, again, this is kind of confusing. But what Paul is saying is if you go back to Exodus, what you find is that when Moses would come down from the mountain and he was radiating God's glory, rather than it being a positive experience, it was a terrifying experience to the Israelites. They did not like seeing God's glory. And so as an act of mercy, what Moses would have to do is he would have to cover his head with a veil to cover that glory 
so that the people could be around Moses without being bothered by it. They were scared of God's glory. In fact, in a way you could say they were rejecting God's glory. And Paul takes that incident and he applies it to every generation that followed after Moses and said, that in essence is the human story. is the glory of God going into the world and yet people rejecting it. They don't want it. They want God to stay away from them. They want distance from it. And he says that that becomes humanity's problem, is that we cover God's glory rather than embracing it and wanting it. But Paul says, and, and look at what Scott Haifman says, commenting on the significance of that detail in the story, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians. In this regard, Moses veiling himself is an act of mercy. At the same time, the very fact that Moses must veil his face is an act of judgment because of the hardness of Israel's heart. This veil not only preserves Israel from being destroyed, it also keeps her from being transformed. And so what Paul is saying is, that problem that existed for generations was solved through Jesus Christ. When now we, through the freedom we have in Christ, can actually long for the glory of God. And once again be restored as his image bearers who can reflect God's very nature and qualities and essence through our own lives. Verses 17 to 18 of 2 Corinthians 3 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What Paul is saying is that the work of the Spirit in your life is to transform you into the likeness of Jesus. As is described as ever-increasing glory of God showing through your lives. There is a clear connection here, not only with the story of Moses and the Exodus, but also with the story of Genesis and the creation account of us being image bearers of God. What the story of the Bible is saying is that the image of God in us was marred by sin. But there is a restoration work that Jesus has accomplished for us through our salvation so that every day as the Holy Spirit is at work in us, we become more and more like Jesus, more and more a reflection of who he is. And Paul continues in the next chapter, chapter 4, in verse 7 to 10, and he says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. What Paul is saying is this. While Moses radiating like a light bulb is pretty obvious, says when the world looks at Christians, followers of Jesus, it's not as obvious. In fact, often we look like losers in society. We look like the beat down ones, the marginalized ones. But what he also says is this. Over time, there will be unmistakable marks of the followers of Jesus that will become evident to others. That glory, in other words, will not hide. And this is one of the most important aspects of our witness in this world. 
is showing others Jesus through our own transformed lives. That is why bearing this fruit of the Spirit is so important to our witness. It is the way God has chosen to glorify himself in our word world is through the church that through the influence of the Holy Spirit bears this fruit of the Spirit and therefore tells people who Jesus is. In other words, yes, it's important that you tell your neighbors about the gospel and who Jesus is. But it's equally important how you live your lives in a way that glorifies God as a witness to them. It's not only important that we build orphanages in India or hospitals in Africa or volunteer for your kids' programs at school or for their sports clubs, but it's how we do these things that makes all the difference. Displaying love, joy, peace, patience, kindness as we do these things is ultimately what our witness is all about. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 to 16, Peter says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And so Peter is saying, to always be prepared to tell others about your faith, but in that is implied that there will be something noticeably different about your life that will cause people to wonder, why do you live your life this way? Why do you behave like this? Why are you so different than us? What makes you different? And I believe that's what the fruit of the Spirit is getting at. Let me just close with this. In 1995, a young sports journalist named Mitch Album uh, reconnected with his old uh, sociology professor in Brandeis University uh, named Maury Schwartz, who was dying of ALS at that time, uh, better known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And Mitch visited Maury uh, once a week in his final year of his life, every Tuesday for 14 weeks before he finally passed away. And based on those encounters with Maury, he ended up writing Tuesdays with Maury, which became the all-time best-selling memoir. And in that book, he tells about this story of one day uh, in the evening talking with Maury. And Maury uh, told Mitch, um, put your wife on the phone. And... Um, it was the first time that his wife talked with Maury. And so he was a little shocked at the depth and the intimacy with which the conversation was unfolding. And so when Mitch, uh, when, when his wife finally hung up the phone with Maury, his wife Janine actually excitedly told him, I'm coming with you on your next trip to see Maury. And during that visit, Maury and Janine sat together as if they were lifelong friends. And Janine had brought their wedding album. And they were looking through all the pictures. And they were laughing together and telling stories together. And then Maury did something um, a bit unexpected because Janine was a professional singer. And Maury said to Janine, uh, will you sing me something? 
and Mitch Album says he, he's, he was bracing himself for that awkward moment because Janine got asked this question all the time at parties and gatherings. But she's so shy and she's such a perfectionist that she never once said yes to that request. But to Album's shock, Janine agreed and sang Maury, the 1930s classic, The Very Thought of You. And as she sang, Maury closed his eyes and a big smile came on his face and tears began to just flow down his cheeks. And this is what Mitch Album wrote about witnessing that moment between Maury and his wife. In all the years I have listened to my wife sing, I never heard her the way he did at that moment. What Album is saying is that through Maury's eyes, Album was able to see his own wife in a way that he never had before. Through the way that Maury treasured every moment with Janine, and by the way that Album saw Maury treat his own wife, Charlie, Album saw his wife in a completely new light. And that's what drew Album to see Maury week after week after week. There was just something so different, so special about the wisdom of living that Maury had gained through his years of life that profoundly impacted everyone that entered into his orbit. As his fame grew, so many people approached Maury wanting to help him in his last days as he was dying of ALS. But what every one of them testified was that instead of helping him, they ended up being helped by him and transformed by their encounter with him. And I think that's what bearing the image of God, bearing the fruit of the Spirit in your life is all about. When they wonder what makes you so different, be prepared to tell them about the hope that is in you because of Jesus Christ. Listen, I know there's some pretty upset men in this room that are probably saying, you've made it really hard for me this week after sharing that story. And maybe there are some of you wives that are elbowing your husbands and saying, see, see. But if that's your takeaway, then you miss the point, right? Even for your wives, it's supposed to be, do I see my husband that way? Listen, I know this can feel just like one more weight placed on you. And that's why it is so important. I've been trying to emphasize this through this entire series is how we go about seeking this fruit of the Spirit is so important. Paul says in the next chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If we are a new creation in Jesus, that transformation has already begun in us. And as I shared last week, the effort we put into this is not the effort of rule keeping, but of relationship, drawing near to God and allowing his beautiful image to transform who we are from the inside out. That's 
why bearing the fruit of the Spirit is such an integral part of the Bible story. It is what we are saved for. Let's pray.